Welcome to Climate Hot Seat. I'm Amanda Susser. One of the most common adaptation strategies to deal with climate change is to maintain, restore, or enhance ecosystem connectivity. Landscape connectivity is broadly defined as the degree to which plants and animals can move across the landscape or among patches of suitable habitat. In many places around the world, the human footprint has interfered with the ability for wildlife to move across large areas because roads, cities, and other infrastructure has fragmented landscapes. Connected systems can allow for species to move on their own. If climate change is making their current habitat unsuitable, they can move to a new location that is better. But if connectivity is disrupted, species often need more intensive and expensive management strategies to help them cope with environmental change. The more species can deal with change on their own, the better. So connectivity has emerged as an approach to help conserve biodiversity at the landscape scale. Connectivity restoration typically occurs in highly impacted areas. Today's guest is an expert in connectivity in areas that are still relatively intact, like Alaska. Please join us as we talk about why she and others are planning for connectivity before connectivity is ever lost. None of us can do this on our own, and so it's really through partnerships and working across boundaries and finding those differences as much as our commonalities to tackle some of the bigger challenges that we're facing. People are doing this out of love. We don't talk about that very much, but that's why people are in this business, because they love nature, they love a particular place, they love a particular species or or birds or something. It's a human attachment to something. My biggest goal is imagining somebody 200 years or 300 years from now, like thinking, I'm so glad they did this. I'm so glad that they had the foresight to do what is not possible to do today. You're listening to Climate Hot Seat with Amanda Sesser. I'm here with Dr. Don Magnus, landscape ecologist at the Kenai National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska. Welcome, Don. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to start with the big picture around connectivity. Why are so many people talking about it? And what does it all mean? Well, in my mind, I think mostly about ecological connectivity, um, being that I'm an ecologist. And I'm not sure why it's coming to a head now. Um, It might be because of things like landscape conservation cooperatives and things like the millennial assessment where people started to try to think about ecosystems at larger scales. Landscape ecology has been around since the 1980s, I believe, but we now have the capacity to do a lot more mapping. We have more satellites. We have more of these large-scale pictures of the earth, and I think all those things together, the asking of how we can keep ecosystem services like clean water and how we can keep larger landscapes um, in our minds as we plan for development. Um, I think those things bring connectivity to the forefront. Um, In the past, we thought more about protecting protected areas and where should we put them, how should we manage them. And 
That work has been done in the United States. Um, our conservation estate is an amazing, amazing resource. We're so lucky to have the federal lands we have here. And in Alaska, for instance, we have huge tracts of federal lands. Um, the refuge I work on is nearly 2 million acres. Arctic is nearly 20 million acres. Um, so that part's done, and yet animals don't live within those islands. Um, water flows outside of those borders. And so I think we're starting to think about how to keep those flows across the landscape, how to make sure animals can migrate across places that are outside um, and, and tether into that protected network. How much of the thinking around flows across the landscape and animal migrations has been stimulated by the recognition of climate change impacts? I think that um, it has been stimulated by climate change impacts. And so one of my mentors, and I think he's one of yours as well, Amanda, is um, Terry Chapin. And he's a, he's been thinking about climate change and ecosystem services. And one of the points he brought up is, you know, and this is coming from other places as well, this idea that we're not managing static wildlife populations, that um, things will need to move to find suitable habitat, that movement has been a major way animals have adapted to climate change in the past. And so Terry Chapin always casts that as, in Alaska, we may have this amazing opportunity because the land use isn't set yet, and so movement have this amazing opportunity to set up natural areas like parks and wildlife refuges with forethought. And they might be it might be dynamic. It might be one way today and, and another way in the future, but still the foresight to plan for animals to have the space between these areas permeable so that they can move as the climate changes and other changes happen. So when we talk about connectivity, a lot of times the focus is on restoring connectivity, enhancing connectivity. Why was it lost in the first place? You know, so landscape ecologists, we talk about this pattern. You know, I'm always looking at maps of North America, maps of the world, and I think I kind of take for granted that viewpoint. Um, because it does sort of shift your perspective on the world. But one very robust pattern as we see um, economies develop uh, in, in a Western economy. So, um, you know, not saying that all economies have to be like this, but Western economies, what tends to happen is as you get more people, more money, more infrastructure investment, um, the landscape becomes less permeable. And so we have this very robust pattern of habitats being um, fragmented, of land use changing, of infrastructure being put in. And this goes across Europe, um, North America, spreading from the east to west, south to north. And as, these, as this development happens, as the human population increases, the tendency is to lose things like large mammals, grizzly bears, 
blink out um, salmon populations um, get smaller. I mean, if you think about salmon runs in the early 1800s, where they would be, they would have been in California. And so um, we just need to be cognizant of how human development can take away from connectivity. And now we're starting to this new phase where places like BAMP with these really innovative wildlife crossing structures, it may not need to be that way. But in the past, I, I think because people didn't think about it, um, development was a major driver of connectivity, the loss of connectivity. That's Banff National Park in Alberta, Canada? Correct, yeah. And um, in, in other examples, but that's one that's just this beautiful example of them putting these wildlife crossing structures into the planning, highway development planning. When you're talking about the, the global trajectory of land use change and conversion and habitat loss, why talk about Alaska and why talk about connectivity in Alaska? It's my understanding that most of Alaska is not developed. There's still wide open spaces, these iconic northern landscapes. So it doesn't seem like there's the, the impetus or the pressure to talk about connectivity yet in, in Alaska versus California or Texas or some of the other places. Yeah, and so this is what Terry Chapin brought up while I was a PhD student, this idea of opportunity and opportunity cost. Because, you know, in many places, when they think about connectivity, they're trying to restore it. And so they're buying back um, lands that have been used for other things, and sometimes that can be quite expensive. Sometimes it's not even feasible. But up in here, here in Alaska, because we aren't as far along in the development trajectory, there's a lot more opportunity for us to proactively plan for these things, um, to maybe set aside monies or have ways to put these connections in and still develop. So it's almost ways to you know, have a development and still have caribous that can my caribou be able to migrate across the landscape, still be able to have grizzly bear populations that keep their genetic diversity. And so in up here in Alaska, yes, it's it's still an open landscape. We're not seeing some of the problems that other places have after they lose connectivity. But if it, it's sort of like developing um, an infrastructure. So when people think about subway systems, which is a way to connect humans across a city, when it's cheap to buy the places to put the subways, people think, oh, we don't need it. And then by the time a city needs it, those same corridors can be very costly or not possible to get. And so it's just trying to think, think ahead and you know, leverage those opportunities so that in 200 years, people can look back and say, wow, that was really smart. And um, we were able to maintain some of some of the things that we enjoy today. It sounds like what you're describing is proactive conservation. And so often our conservation science is based on a crisis or we've noticed that we're losing something and it's an emergency and we have to act. I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, 
as I mature in this field, um, one of my frustrations is that so much of the conservation work is reactive. And so we could spend all day just fighting, 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 and losing. And I'm trying to shift the work that I do um, towards more more towards these sort of opportunities, um, taking advantage of them while there is flexibility in the decision space. Could you describe your approach for thinking about connectivity and planning for connect- connectivity in Alaska? So um, there was this, as you know, there was BLM was engaging in a planning process, and BLM owns tracks of land between parks and refuges. And they wanted to do multi-jurisdictional cross-boundary planning or integrate that sort of thinking. So this is a wonderful opportunity for a landscape ecologist. And so um, the thinking was, can we leverage the existing conservation estate in their planning area and think about connections between those lands? And then the BLM will get the added, like more bang for their buck because they could, in some cases, like and this has just stunned me when I first saw it, they, Gates of the Arctic National Wild, or National Park and Preserve and Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, they're only separated by six miles. But if BLM, who owns that land, thinks about connectivity, they'll link 60 million acres of protected lands. Basically, the, the entire Brooks Range ecosystem would have connections. And, th- and this matters because, you know, in large ungulate populations or grizzly bear populations, when a road goes in, you can see the genetic signal of that. So, for instance, on the Kenai Peninsula where I work, um, the Sterling Highway severs moose populations. Um, You can see that. And in California, desert bighorn sheep, when a road goes in, you can see that those populations become isolated. There's um, evidence that that occurs. And so, the BLM could have has huge opportunities to, um, you know, just think about putting in crossing structures, thinking thinking proactively about how to not lose connectivity be, between populations of wildlife in the Brooks Range, and it's it's a and when you think about it in that way, it's an amazing opportunity. And so, in this area, there were several sets of parks and refuges, and we tried to think about how we could layer into the planning process connections between these lands. And so that was the strategy. It sounds like in order to have these strategies implemented, that it's going to take cooperation among multiple government agencies, private landowners, Mm -hmm. state and tribal and, and native corporations, to work together to, to see the shared implementation of these strategies. Do you think that's feasible? You know, I do, um, and, and you're right. And it seems like, you know, at first, when I first came into this field, I used to think it was just information that would get people to work together. But I'm starting to realize that part of this is 
to get that shared vision that connectivity matters, to make it a priority, um, or, you know, to have people buy into that being a beneficial attribute of the ecosystem that benefits people. And if you can get through that, then if you can, if you can keep, you know, reminding people or get people on board with that goal, then I do think it's it's possible. And then also to stay open enough to hear their constraints that they need to work through because, you know, different people have different uses of the landscape and that's okay. And so I'm starting to think for conservationists, it's important to come to the table with your values and, and the things you want to be very open and transparent and to be able to talk about the why, the why it's important, the reasons that you have these ideas, and then maintain flexibility so that you can hear other people's values and needs and work together to try to come up with the best solution sets for, for landscape planning. Do you think it's necessary to have the perfect answer prior to implementation? No, definitely not. And I actually think that kind of thinking can break down um, and make us lose opportunities. Um, because I think most things, many, many, many different solution sets can work. And in some cases, the solution sets could be dynamic. So you might keep a corridor open and then things might change and you could renegotiate and find a different pathway. And and and. I think as long as we don't lose sight of the overarching goal, which would be permeability, um, that those things are okay, and it doesn't need to be perfect. Are you planning for connectivity for particular wildlife species? And if so, are you using radio collars or GPS collars to see where those species are moving across the landscape currently, and then using that to model your connectivity? So... That's a strategy that's widely used. Um, In this particular case, no. We took a very coarse filter approach um, that's called conserving the stage. And that that comes from Shakespeare's idea that, like, if you have the place for the actors, or Shakespeare play, this was a line, that the, so the species in this analogy are the actors and the landscape is the stage. And in and, and this idea, um, we're, we're anticipating that species are going to need to move with climate and we're going to go off of topographic features, which are considered enduring features. And so if we can connect similar topographic types that we'll have an umbrella protection of all the species that will be shifting into those different topographic areas. So that's kind of the the thinking. And so it's, it's not based on species or where they are exactly today. And, you know, to be quite honest, it's, it's more of a, um, it is a coarse filter approach. It's more, more of a broad brush approach and perhaps for certain species, there might be, I mean, it doesn't preclude that. So you set up a corridor that's this coarse corridor. Now within that, you could manage lands, you could manipulate habitat to make it appealing to a species to try to filter them through. All that would still be possible. But this approach just tries in, in the broadest sense to get 
some coordination and how we're going to keep corridors between parks and refuges. And I, I like to say, like, I mean, I, I honestly don't care how we do it. I mean, we could use a crayon. I mean, we have these these models that are, you know, that we can see the assumptions and try to plan the best place. But again, it doesn't need to be optimal as long as it's not totally impermeable in my mind. Um, <laughs> and so one thing I like to say is one time I was in New Orleans and I, I was uh, there for Mardi Gras and I was getting a hurricane and I saw a bumper sticker on the wall of this pizza place and it said, pizza's like sex, even when it's bad, it's good. And so my new thing is, I try to say, you know, connectivity is like pizza, even when it's bad, it's good. <laughs> you know? And so I don't, I don't feel like we need to have it optimized if as long as we have it I, I feel like you know if in that 500 years from now development is more you know we have a really strong economy and, and we have a lot of people maybe world populations at a place I can't even imagine and we have skyscrapers or whatever other things are going on that it's sort of a if if we build it, they will come model. It's a field of dreams model that it doesn't need to be optimal. They'll still they'll still go to it if it's not um, a skyscraper, or strip mall, or a road that they're going to get hit on. So it's the along the lines that any connectivity is better than a fragmented landscape. Yeah, or any any steps we can take to move in that direction is better than than you know not doing anything because it's not fully ideal for all species. Don, what would you describe as the biggest opportunity with your work, thinking about connectivity in Alaska and proactive planning, planning now for changes before they occur, changes that you anticipate? So both, what is the, the biggest opportunity, but what, are, what is also your biggest challenge? So... I think the biggest opportunity is just to, to 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 do something that I always imagine like my biggest goal is imagining somebody 200 years or 300 years from now like thinking I'm so glad they did this I'm so glad that they had the foresight to do what is not possible to do today and so so again, here in Alaska, the biggest opportunity is just that there's still so much flexibility in land use, and we do have this amazing, amazing resource, which is the federal lands that were set aside in Anilka. Um, I just feel lucky every day that you know that we have access to it to hunt and to be outside. Um, that we're not kept off the land, that we have large mammals and like caribou and brown bear that can still coexist and we have huge salmon runs. And so taking that opportunity that was laid for us in the 1980s and then bringing it to an even better place is very exciting and not one that precludes because I I want a vibrant economy here as well I want people to have opportunities to work and have good work and good jobs as well and so 
just the and, and that's another thing here is you know people are interested in in integrating thinking about ecosystems and the services they provide um, and economy and social systems the things people need to be happy and healthy and so that's a, an, another opportunity up here is people really um, care about that and they're talking about it in those terms some of the barriers I see um, at least the thing that frustrates me the most um, honestly is when I get pushback from conservation people and people in ecology um, sometimes it's where I get the biggest pushback um, people asking the question like how do you know this is the perfect place to put a corridor or do we not do we have enough data to even make this suggestion so when people in my own profession can't talk about values and visions without or saying who who are we to to want to do these things don't we need more information and I don't think information is what's driving these things it's the things we care about um, and it doesn't allow for that flexibility to negotiate with other people who are using the landscape or that need to do things on the landscape. And so, and, and I was that person too, you know, in the early part of my career, um, I was much more reactive, just trying to, wanting things not to change, you know, wanting no more development, um, thinking of it in, in sort of that, that dichotomy of, development's bad and keeping things the way they are is good and and so I I, I am empathetic to it and I, and I understand it and yet um, now I see it getting in the way of, of getting work done and it's very frustrating for me. It, it strikes me in our field that a lot of the practitioners, the conservationists or the ecology or ecologists or the refuge managers come back and say, well, we need more information. We need more data. We can't make those decisions because we don't have enough of the data. But it doesn't matter where you go around the country or around the world. We're never going to have all of the information or understand the entire picture. Yeah, exactly. And, and again, I think in some cases we're talking more about values and these things aren't necessarily transparent to other people at the table. Like if we can't clearly say, you know, the parks and refuges are an opportunity to um, keep intact ecosystems and connecting them is going to make them more resilient and can't keep that as the focal point, get lost in the, the, the weeds and the details and lose sight of, of this big picture of just simply saying like what we think would, would make for a good future for wildlife and for people, um, then, then that can be problematic because I think we um, lose our ability to contribute as, as a field. And I mean, I'm not saying science isn't important, and 
I definitely think, you know, having science be rigorous, so repeatable and transparent is very important. Um, and being open to changing, but it's not something you do and you're done. It, it's something where you're constantly learning and and that your values inform the questions you ask. And so I do think it's very important that we're we're very clear and grounded in where we're coming from so that we can move towards that. That's all of my questions. Do you have anything you'd like to add? Let's go drink some beers. Woo! <laughs> If you have requests on topics for future episodes, please let us know. If you would like us to feature your work on adaptation, transformation, or sustainability solutions, we would love to hear from you. Look for more episodes of Climate Hot Seat on 21sustainability.com. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to donate, head over to 21sustainability.com podcast and click the donate button. We appreciate all of your continued support. Climate change isn't something that one person or one country is going to solve alone. But by working together, we can not only solve present challenges, but we can create a more just, equitable world to live in at the same time. This is a 21 Sustainability production. Editing by Jason Mitson. Music by Lee Rosevere. Follow me on Twitter, at Professor Sesser.